Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra. A special exhibit at the Institute of Contemporary Art showcases the work of three local artists. They are the 2021 winners of the James and Audrey Foster Prize. The biennial exhibition is key to the ICA's efforts to support local artists. The Foster Prize, which has been around for over two decades, helps highlight the winner's artistry with specially commissioned works. The art produced by the three latest winners illustrates different mediums and perspectives, though each of their pieces share similar themes. The exhibition opened last September and runs through January 30th. Joining me now, Marlon Forrester, artist and educator born in Guyana and raised in Boston. He is a resident artist at the African-American Master Art Residency Program at Northeastern University. Welcome, Marlon. Hello, and thank you for having me. Glad to have you. Also with me, Evan Haynes, who co-founded the Shelter-in-Place Small-Scale Model Gallery during the pandemic. Haynes uses drawings, paintings, and sculptures and installations to create his art. Hi, Evan. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Great to have you as well. And also with me, Del Marie Hamilton, an artist, writer, and curator who works across a variety of mediums, including performance, video, painting, photography, and installation. She currently works at Harvard's Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research. Hello, Del. Hi, Callie. Good to be with you. Well, I'm thrilled to have all of you. The Foster Prize this year is a little bit different in that there are a smaller number of Winners, And that was a deliberate choice by the curator, Jeffrey DeBoss. He uh, wanted to give more space to fewer artists and so that you would be able to literally stretch out and do what you wanted to do in your commission pieces. But let's start at the beginning and I'll have each of you tell me briefly how you learned you were the winner. Marlon? You know, um, I learned that I was the winner through a process. Jeff reached out to me and we had some conversations and those conversations eventually led to him sharing with me that he that I had been selected. Um, once I received that notice from him, I was very excited, really elated, and we had some more conversations about uh, the next process in terms of producing work and then the timelines uh, related to the exhibition of the work. You know, I should mention, um, Eben, as I come to you, that uh, he really sort of explored the work of 100-plus artists um, and did some studio visits of about 20 to 25, uh, which was a lot because he was operating in the pandemic. So he got around to see quite a few people. So by the time he settled on the three of you, one of them being you, how'd you feel when you found out you'd won? Um, it was amazing. I mean, I was honestly pretty surprised. I didn't expect, uh, he's, when he told me he was doing studio visits, he used to say like, well, I'm on Zoom, so, you know, we can, can talk to more people this way. And I thought like, okay, great. I'll never hear from him again. Um, but then he gave me a phone call and said I'd won and I didn't truly know like the, exactly what that meant. Um, but he explained it to me and I was really super excited because what a huge opportunity. Right. And same thing for you, Dell. How did you uh, realize, or how did he tell you you'd won? 
Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Jeff had come to my studio in 2019, which feels like like a lifetime ago, but he'd done a studio visit with me and we had talked about um, different, you know, books that we loved. Um, I showed him some of my photographic work and then I had explained to him that my teacher and mentor had passed away in 2016 and that I had inherited essentially the contents of her apartment. And so we talked about this insane story of me inheriting all these personal items. And then in November, 2020, I get a call and he tells me I'm one of the Foster Prize recipients. And I start kind of rolling around on the floor in my kitchen because I'm kind <laughs> of, because I'm in shock. <laughs> um, I really did not know what the heck um, that meant similar to Evan, like, okay, maybe I'm shocked this, you know, I can't believe he's been following my work and, and so forth. And so, um, you know, that's when he asked me, did you want to do your, your project, um, about your teacher, Susan Dinker? And I said, yes. And, um, and then we were off to the races. Okay. Well, now I want to dive into each of uh, your individual projects because they're all very interesting. I'll start with you, Marlon, again. Your piece is called If Black Saints Could Fly 23. What does that mean? Um, so for me, I've always been interested in the idea of basketball as a form of transformation. And um, one of the things that I wanted to do in this exhibition was explore the idea of the Ibu slave passing. I've always looked at the idea of the black male body as a body that's always in a state of transformation. Um, and that understanding that the slave passage, right? You know, me being West Indian, being from the islands, being from, I was born in Guyana, South America, and I came here as a youth. And so this idea of double consciousness and triple consciousness was important to me. And so I started thinking about how, how are black you know, what is the history of, you know, the Black struggle? How's the, what is the history of the slave passage in relationship to myself? And then I, I read about the Ibu slave passing and that the idea that they had decided that they would um, walk into the water instead of being in bondage. And the myth and the history behind that was that they flew away, right? And, and how they were able to transform their bodies and become spiritual entities that could leave this physical form and this physical frame and be transformed into something else. And so um, that was the foundation for these works where, uh, you know, during COVID, you know, uh, we we're dealing with the idea of Black Lives Matter, that absence of any sense of voice, especially with the violence that we saw with George Floyd. So I started thinking about how could I symbolize a powerful Black body and so I started using black males, young black males, and then I reflected on them and I, and I connected them to the pedestal pieces of religious and symbolic images of saints found on the, um, the temple or found on the church of Notre Dame. And those pedestal pieces became the framework for these pieces. You know, if you look at the work, I also embedded uh, the geometry from basketball courts. I used the geometric um, patterns and lines and incorporate those into the, the background as well. And so that became the framework um, for the work. And then, you know, obviously I used architecture and design from Guyana and infused that into to create these kind of uh, pieces that became vessels using optical paint and mixing and were able to frame the work together in that way. So a couple of things. First of all, the flight concept, imagery, cultural piece that you have included in your work. Um, if 
Black Saints Could Fly 23 is very commonly understood. Um, I'm thinking about Virginia Hamilton's The People Could Fly, American Black Folk Tales. I'm thinking of Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon, her characters want to fly physically yeah. and metaphorically, escaping from pain and suffering. So you're right in that space. It's the 23 part that threw me off because I am not a basketball person. So oh. <laughs> explain uh, to the listeners what 23 refers to. Well, uh, for me, um, you know, 23 for me growing up was the number that Michael Jordan wore. And so he symbolized it for me, a black male icon and symbol of of what it becomes or what you can become in terms of excellence, not only on the court, but also in his brand, you know, in his uh, outreach to young people. Um, And so he was given this gift, right? God gave him this gift of being able to, you know, kind of transcend gravity. And I always saw him as an icon. But then also I started looking at the number from the idea of humanity, that we all have 23 chromosomes, you know, regardless of our color, regardless of how we look, we all at the very core DNA and genetic uh, uh, structure have 23 chromosomes that, that build and construct all of us. All right. So that's Marlon Forrester talking about his piece of Black Saints Could Fly 23. Over to you, Evan Haynes. Your piece is called Facades, and it's literally huge. I mean, <laughs> it's a house inside the ICA. Please talk about it. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's the most ambitious thing I've ever produced, which was really exciting to be able to to be able to spend this much time on a single piece and make something so huge. Especially like my my none of this fit in my studio. You know, I had to do it all in pieces and sideways and on the floor because I didn't even have the ceiling, the ceiling space to do it. Um, <clears throat> but it, it originally the idea grew out of the shelter in place gallery project that my wife and I started at the beginning of the pandemic, which is largely about like the, the lack of available space for artists in Boston, the lack of spaces to work, but also the lack of spaces to show work. And so facades growing out of that uh, is more critical of the systems of neglect and housing and space in the city that kind of places capital above people. So using this, this big kind of immersive environment, I'm trying to explore you know, what shelter is and questioning what we protect and, um, and why we protect the things that we protect culturally. And it, people should know that your your the shelter in place was a small scale gallery. So you've literally gone from tiny tiny exhibitions to this huge space. I wonder what was involved in your creative process in doing that. Um, yeah, I mean it was it's a lot more time and a lot more space needed to do it. But otherwise, it was pretty similar. I mean, I build you know the shelter in place gallery is one twelve scale, which means that one one inch um, looks like appears as one foot in photographs. And so um, it's a little bit easier to build things in at, at true scale, just because like for measuring purposes, um, physically it's obviously harder and it takes a lot longer, but it's still the same process of, you know, building this kind of um, everything is panels that are adhered to the structure in the, in the room. And so, so all of that is kind of illusionistic in that it's painted it's painted to look real more so than it actually being real or actually being structural. And what do you want us to take away from the fact that we, it's it's set in a kind of bucolic New England landscape setting? It seems very peaceful and large outside the illusionary window that you have there, but yet you're talking about limited space and availability and shelter. 
Yeah, well, it, it's this kind of bucolic setting, but at the same time, you know, everything's sort of falling apart and it's kind of being pulled apart. And, and the idea is that these spaces are being mined for the profit that they can provide. And then once everything has been mined out, once it is no longer habitable through neglect or through literally pulling things apart, then we can just tear them down and someone will build some luxury condo in its place. And, and, and what we're questioning is not uh, the building itself, but more who lives in that building, you know? And like a mantra I've had for the show is that the most important person ever lived in a space is the person who is currently living in that space because mm. that is who that space serves. Mm. And so when, when, we, when we force people out of those spaces, who are these spaces actually serving anymore? Wow. Okay. That's Eben Haynes, um, and his work is called Facades. Over to you, Del Marie Hamilton. Your piece, your installation, and it is an installation, it's called The End of Susan. You reference your mentor before, and um, you're receiving um, as a gift all of her belongings. But here you have put it together in an artistic way to say what? And plus, explain to us how you've put it together. Yeah, great question. So the piece is called The End of Susan, The End of Everything, and it's a room-sized multimedia installation that I've developed to sort of mimic her living space. And so we have these custom-made bookcases that have multiple sort of cubby holes for where um, some of the more rare books that she left to me, including work by County Cullen, um, a book called Caroling Dusk that he um, edited in 1927 that has artwork and frontispiece by Aaron Douglas. Um, so some of those kinds of rare objects are, and books are in some of the shelving of the bookcase. And then some of the other bookcases in the space, as well as Susan's desk, sort of populate the other section. So it sort of is mimicking her living room space, her study space, um, as well as her bedroom space. And it's made up of her personal belongings that, as I said, include these books, but also to her Kodak slide projectors. Because she was an art historian of the highest order, and in particular in African-American art, I wanted to use some of her art historical slides. There's literally thousands of them that I have. And they're set up um, as a triptych, essentially. But they're mimicking some of the slides and the artworks that she would have been talking about in her classes and in her teachings. And so I met her when I was in graduate school at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, um, Tufts University in 2010 or so. And we struck up a friendship um, as I was trying to make a shift from, at the time, photography into more kind of ambitious projects. Um, so she's incredibly in instrumental in me trying to expand my work and thinking about, you know, what happens when someone you dearly love passes away and then what do you do with their most personal possessions? And so I inherited not just some of these rare books, but everything from, let's say, her medications and her taxi receipts to her fine china and her designer clothing. And so as people have come to visit the space and as I was putting it together, um, in 2016, many of the objects were sitting in a storage unit and I hadn't touched them for many years, really not until really Jeff came to my studio um, in 2019, where he really kind of encouraged me to sort of try to, to grapple with these objects and with the aftermath of her death. And then in 2018, I learned that there was a second storage unit with more books and more personal items. But as I was going through them, I kept thinking about the all the folks that have passed 
passed away as a result of the pandemic and that their loved ones were um, doing the same thing, trying to decide what to do with someone's most personal objects and reckoning with the death of all the other folks that I've lost. The 2000s for me really have been really complicated where I've lost many loved ones. And so um, the project was an opportunity to sort of wrestle with both memory, but as well as sort of meaning itself. Um, you know, how do we ourselves as human beings remain connected with one another in the, in the thick of a pandemic, um, but also too with all the folks that we've loved. And so the, the space is contemplative um, and organized in a way with a bench in the center of the room where you could just kind of spend time looking at these different objects and, and, and thinking about the books that, you know, perhaps you've grown up loving just as a result of a teacher who was important to your own life. Well, I had to sit on the bench because my mind was blown about the, the oh my God, the rare books, the rare albums, the rare, um, you know, objects. It was just yep. stunning um, to, Thank you. to absorb all of that. So that was, that was part, that's part of the experience as well. So here's a question for all of you. Um, what the Foster Prize does is highlight artists who are living in Boston, which is, I think, particularly important for local artists to, you know, make sure that your work is highlighted and to remind people of the kind of talent that we we have in town. And I'd like for each of you to speak to what does living in Boston or how has living in Boston influenced your work and this work, perhaps specifically? Marlon? I think I think for me, living in Boston, growing up in Boston, there definitely is that history of segregation. You know, um, and so uh, growing up as a young person, I remember living in Dorchester, uh, Common Square area, and understanding that if I crossed over the Dorchester Ave line and headed toward, whether it's like Adams or headed toward Neponset area, that there were people there who weren't going to be happy with my presence, you know? Um, and so in this work, um, the idea of that black male body um, being something that's glorified and something that's being celebrated and being venerated um, was important for me. And I think it helps to solidify the idea of, you know, the black male body is something that's positive and, and it's specifically coming out of the Black Lives Matter and how, you know, black male bodies were kind of talked about um, and police violence and also experiencing some of that stuff myself as a young person. It was very important for me to highlight that and allow my community to come here, uh, bring my students from um, different schools so they could see, you know, the potential of, of, of their creative process and ideas. All right. Same question to you, Eben. Yeah, I think growing up in the city, you know, kind of seeing the changes of gentrification and learning how skewed our housing policies are and kind of who, who's allowed in certain places, who's how, how, uh, Increasingly, as things become corporatized and things become, you know, shut out, it's harder to harder to get in places. And so, so I think the show grew out a lot of that. Just me, like seeing those changes and and watching this kind of uh, simultaneous like decay of of the way that I was viewing the city at the same time as it became bright and shiny and new and and very different. And you, Delmarie. Yeah, for me, I am originally from the Bronx. Uh, my parents, um, when they divorced in the early 80s, is when my mom and my brothers and I relocated here to Boston. And so for me, Boston has always been a really great lab. Um, 
partly because of all the educational opportunities I've gotten um, here. I went to Boston Latin Academy, you know, for high school and then to Northeastern and then on to the museum school at Tufts um, to get my MFA. And so, and also to just having a great gig um, at Harvard and working at this, you know, premier research center that's focused on African and African American studies. So for me, the city has been about opportunity and about education and about history. Um, it's been a, a space where I build community from folks from all walks of life. And so for me, I am always very struck about how old the city of Boston is and all of its different histories and how there's still probably a, a lot many more stories to tell. Um, simply because of all these academic institutions and all of the sort of archival holdings that they have. And so, um, and I think a lot too about the libraries that I spent time in um, as a kid, as well as um, different museums that I spent time in as a, as a child. And so for, to have work um, at the ICA, a space that, you know, I couldn't have imagined my work in 20 years ago. For me, it's, it's been very much about sort of growth and expansion and educational opportunity. And what would you like people to take away, understanding that we all look at your pieces and through our own lenses? But I'm curious for each of you. Dell, I'm going to start with you. What, what would you like people to take away? Um, I think I think the thing that I'd like for them to take away is to to understand that they're not alone in um, in grappling with with grief and mourning, and that it's it doesn't happen in a straight line, and that art can actually stand in the gap to sort of give us space to kind of to deal with with grief. And so I, I kind of feel like as Americans, we have a difficulty grappling with death. And certainly, obviously, with the last five years or so of, you know, kind of just living under um, 45, right, there's sort of all this polarization that's been happening. And, and for me, I think, for my installation, I, I sort of just, again, I just created it as a space for folks to reflect and to have time to kind of slow down and to sort of, again, sort of to sit with melancholy, but also to, to sort of think about all those books and objects on the shelves and, and the ways in which they've provided some level of escape or, or beauty or grace. Mm. Evan? I'd like to have people kind of rethink their feelings about you know, community and space and, and the way that they move through space and just why we see housing as something that should be deserved only through hard work and not as, as a, a human right. Um, that pe People need places to live and people need places to be. And we have some kind of funny feelings about that right now. Mm. And Marlon. Um, I want people to leave the space and, and reflect on the idea that painting is magical. You know, um, that they as artists uh, can walk through someone else's dream and be able to kind of, or just as a, as a viewer who is not an artist, can walk to someone's dream um, of the future and be able to see themselves in it and be able to spend time in a meditative process and to look at the work and, and to relook at the work. And then also walk away with a certain like, uh, you know, a certain gift. Right. And I think as artists, we all are present at the ICA. We've all been selected because we understand that our our voice, our our, our passion for what we do, um, you know, pushes us forward. But I, I also think that it, it's an opportunity for uh, families to come in and, and listen to the stories and understand the history behind our work 
and be able to understand that it's not just about community, but it's about uplifting each other through our individual voices as a collective consciousness. Well, congratulations to all three of you. And thank you so much for joining me. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. For yeah, thank you so much. It's been an honor. Thank you. Marlon Forrester is an artist and educator born in Guyana and raised in Boston. He is a resident artist at the African-American Master Artist Residence Program at Northeastern University. Eben Haynes is a Boston-based artist who co-founded the shelter-in-place small-scale model gallery during the pandemic. Haynes uses drawings, paintings, and sculptures and installations to create his art. Delmarie Hamilton is an artist, writer, and curator based in Boston who works across a variety of mediums, including performance, video, painting, photography, and installation. She currently works at Harvard's Hutchins Center for African and African-American Research. They are all winners of the 2021 James and Audrey Foster Prize. This year's exhibition runs until January 30th. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.